It's totally lost on the listener, but uh, when Cam does start mm. the uh, theme song and play the stings, yes. it's so loud. It just yeah. Bl- yeah. blows the eardrums it, away. Interestingly, we were saying uh, how professional we're going to be on this, this program today, and um, I think Cam was very professional turning the volume up super loud for that one to really let us know who's boss yeah well look uh rawdon i think the under the bar podcast mm. our days are numbered yeah uh, well we're yeah. in the crosshairs there's a freight train poached. bearing down upon mm. us uh tom hewitt is my name with mm. me as always is rawdon dubois rawdon mm. good morning let me just uh announce the start of the program with mm-hmm. the uh the under the bar bell very nice. Very we can nice. now begin. Yes, I'm here. Well, with us as always is uh, Cam the Wookie. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, nice one. And there was uh, a touch of phlegm there induced by the uh, bit of milk. Bit of dairy. Mm, bit of dairy. A little bit dairy. Okay, our special guest on the podcast today, mm. Rawdon, is Dan Garner. Well, he's actually been on about 10,000 times, apparently. Yeah, so look, I think the first time we had Dan Garner on the program was back at episode number 19. Well, we've been going for many, many years, Tom. We've, we've stood the test of time, this program. We can see how a lot of people would want their hands on the program. <laughs> so if you're new to the to the podcast and you'd like to go back and listen to some of Dan's earlier stuff, that's highly recommended. We did a recovery series. We also did a series on the macros, I believe. Yep. Today, what we're going to do is talk about protein. Protein, really good protein. It's good protein, mate. Yeah, really easy on the guts. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, tastes, it's good. Tastes real good. It's good protein. It's good protein. But uh, Dan has got some good resources on protein. So mm, if you go to mm, coachgarner.com, mm. he's got the Protein Clarity, which mm. is a guide. Then he's got a Total Protein Mastery course, which mm. you can do. Mm. Uh, and so we're going to revisit optimal amounts and timing and all that kind of stuff. We, we thought we would, would go balls deep into the, the research again and see if anything's changed uh, over the last sort of year or so. Well, probably a couple of years ago, we had him on, I guess, doing that series with the uh, macros that we've yes. been close to. So it might be nice to uh, re- recap and see if anything anything new or we just keep doing the same stuff. So, yeah, and, and you forgot to give the, the listeners a, a forewarning about... Uh, now, Dan, part of the program will be absolutely amazing in those old episodes, but we might be a little rusty back then. Just go easy. Don't expect too much. I mean, much like you do now. You don't expect too much it's, now, but no. even less back then. Even less back then. I was talking to one of my clients the other day, and he sometimes does go back and listen oh, to the early ones. Why? I, just, I don't know how he could do it. No. Yeah. I had someone the other day who goes, yeah, yeah, no, I'm listening to your podcast. Oh, cool. Did you, did Thomas Lilly or, no, no, I went back to the start. Uh, Started from the start. I went, <laughs> my God. It would have been bad back then. Yeah. Now, while we're still talking on Dan Garner, Rawdon, mm. he's coming out to Australia in 2019. Mm. He's doing a two-day seminar series, mm. uh, but there's a little bonus on that as well. So on Friday night, so okay, let's we'll just break. Take down it from the, the top. Okay, one, take from the two, top. one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. So Perth, he's here on the 9th and 10th of February, mm-hmm. Saturday, Sunday. Then he goes to Melbourne for a 16th and 17th of February, uh-huh. Saturday, Sunday. Yep. Then he's up to Sydney for 23rd and 24th of February. And he'll talk more about this in his interview, of course, but Mm -hmm. he's doing a hypertrophy day. He's doing a fat loss day Mm. and you can buy a ticket to either one or to both. And he's doing a free 
Friday evening seminar before each of these where he's talking about online business mm. and um, how to transition on, yeah. your uh, your real world business to an online business, uh, which I think could be very good for us, Rodan, because yeah. uh, I think if there's one thing that you and I do better than anyone else mm. in the industry, mm. it's not making any money. No, we, we uh, smoke and mirrors, Tom. Yeah. Smoke and mirrors. We sure we write, you know, pretty cool podcast, you know, lots of posts on social media, but no, there's not much substance behind all that. <laughs> No, Very little. And consistency is key. Consistency uh, is key. Yeah, so we, we we should actually go and pay yeah. attention on the Friday night. I'm not and paying, look, though. And you can no- tell Dan I'm not paying. <laughs> yeah. I'm not paying at all. Yeah, no, nor should you. So mm. uh, Dan Garner's coming up very shortly. And, and, and we're going to help. Uh, we're going to be helping the Sydney seminar. So yes. we're going to give him a hand and uh, see if we can get a cool venue, somewhere that has comfy chairs and... Uh, uh, I will uh, hopefully be there for both days as well, which is awesome. Okay, very, very good. Now, we've made a few little snide comments and uh, some of mm. our in-jokes, which no one picks up as we no. always do. Mm. But uh, <laughs> how, how do we start, Tom? How do we start? Exactly where to start with this. Well, well, maybe we dial it right back and we say, you know, the Under the Bar podcast, when mm. it first started, it was the Under the Bar Clean Health podcast. Mm. Rod and you mm. and I both met each other working uh, with Dave McDonald yes. in uh, Clean Health mm. back in the uh, Anytime the Fitness. The CHPC. Uh, St. Leonard's days. And then uh, things started to grow and develop. And then uh, Dane obviously got the city facility and opened mm. up the CHPC. And at some point along the line there, we had an idea about uh, a podcast. A program. You know, as usual, Rod and I, uh, our ideas don't really come to fruition. We, no. we have some great ideas. Yeah, great ideas. Yeah, Bra- brainstorming sessions. Yeah, the brainstorming second, sessions, second to none. Yeah. <laughs> so productive, and yeah. we sort of high five. You know, put all all our hands into the middle and go, yeah. woo, woo. We finished. Yeah, but and then, uh, um, and then we, you know, go back to doing what we're doing. Yeah, but exactly. this one, this one did come to life. This one came to life, and uh, the Under the Bar podcast was born. We went out and sourced a studio and got ourselves together and started mm. doing this uh, podcast. Mm. Then, after a certain amount of time, uh, around about the time that uh, Dane was involved with the owner of the Icon Performance Center, mm. and the podcast then shifted from being the Clean Health podcast to the Icon Performance podcast. That's right. Um, we got sort of, you know, someone saw value in it to be to doing that, and Dane was happy with uh, such and such and blah, 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 and, mm-hmm. and then it became the, uh, the Icon Performance Health Under the Bar podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Very long. And then... Uh, after all of that, at some way along the line, look, it just became the Under the Bar podcast. You yep. and I, you know, started to take, you know, sole responsibility for the program. We've done re-branded a few seminars, it. rebranded and such and such and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And here That's we right. are today, bumbling along the way we do. Mm. Now, lovely little bit of background there. That's yeah. that, Fast forward to, uh, what, about a month ago, I suppose, when the... When the hand of God reached out to us to uh, <laughs> to uh, discuss things and bury the hatchet, yeah. So uh, obviously there was a, I guess, a period in in well when it was clean health. It's now the Clean Health Fitness Institute. So before CHFI, it was just yep. uh, you know uh, clean health personal training, whatever it was, and then you left, and uh, and then I left, and very yeah, everyone else left. Everyone, yeah. every, <laughs> everyone was I wasn't there, Tom. Yeah, everyone, you know, everyone, everyone, everyone left, and um, the rats deserting the ship. But then you know a new new crew came on board, and yeah. you know onwards and upwards. Uh, it was the mutiny that needed to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The buccaneers. Yeah. yeah, the mutiny. But anyway, Dane reached out to he, he uh, did. to catch up and bury the hatchet. Mm. Um, and it was reached out uh, to myself on uh, Facey. Yeah, he added me back on Facebook. Yes, because you know, we're mates after we reached out and reconnected. But yeah, he wanted to have a uh, wanted to have a chat, and uh, we, we, you know 
we didn't know it was anything to do with the podcast at that point well, in time. We knew it wasn't going to be just a chat. No. Yeah, he, he so this is a bit strange, and <laughs> yeah. I, I told you. And uh, anyway, we uh, decided to catch up, and we had... Uh, I hadn't seen the CHFI. I think you had been there I once. Had. Yep. So we uh, we went up there on a... I think it was the Thursday afternoon, and um, I thought we'd just sort of meet, say hi, and then take off to the cafe somewhere. And But no, no, it was... Uh, show us around the facility, which made perfect sense. I hadn't seen it before, but... Mm-hmm. Little did I know, Mark was upstairs, uh, Mark Carroll, hi, if you're listening, uh, presenting, and uh, Dane paraded us through the middle of his presentation. And, yes, uh, very as inappropriately. He does, I as mean, he does. Coach Mark Carroll is just there trying to do his job and educate <laughs> yeah. a room full of students. And, uh, <laughs> and then we went through. But it was nice to, uh, it, was a, it was a big crowd there, though, so it was obviously a, um, a good seminar that he was running. I don't know what it was on, we didn't find out, but... Checked out the facility and it was uh, quite an amazing setup, I must say. Oh, uh, it's great out there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, purpose built. I mean, the gym is lovely, um, really slick and well uh-huh. laid out. And then uh-huh. he's got the classroom. He's yep. got an outdoor barbecue area. Yep. He's got nice showers and various things. Mm. And it's all... All the bells and whistles. All the bells and whistles, super slick. Anyway, awesome facility. And then we cruised off to the... Uh, the uh, cafe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Dane, <laughs> Dane barked off a few more orders and a yeah. big plate of six kebabs came out. Yeah, there was about uh, 20 kebabs on there. But yeah, yeah he, he had some lunch and we had a co- couple of coffees. And, and we chatted, you know, I guess uh, spoke about um, the various things and what's so-and-so doing and this and that. So it was a bit of a catch-up session. And um, and truth be told, you know, we, uh, we were there swinging, throwing a few punches, you know, quite relaxed. And um, now we no longer work for for Dana, I suppose, a few truths were, were discussed. So we, a mm. um, bit of banter back and forth. But at the end of it, we found out that it was actually the, the podcast after all that. And it was like, well, well, you know, we sort of looked at each other and we said, we knew there was a reason why you got us here, Dane. And uh, he had a bit of a chuckle and said, yeah, look, it's, it's me. There's always a reason. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and, and that's what it was about. And uh, so he's interested in uh, launching his uh, industry leader podcast because that's what he wanted. Because Tom... You know, what is under the bar? Under the bar. Under the bar. I mean, uh, what does that mean anyway? <laughs> Industry leader podcast. Now that's a name. <laughs> and truth be told, it's uh, you know, it is a more impressive name. You know, oh, it's so, far more impressive. Yeah, very uh, CHFI and uh, Dane McDonald. But that was it. And uh, initially, you know, we weren't uh, that interested, I suppose. But then uh, some some numbers were thrown around, mm, and then some pretty know, juicy numbers. Very too. juicy. Yeah, really yeah. juicy. Are juicy enough for us to think mm. of, to actually sit down and uh, think about it and map yeah. it out and say, well, okay, if we were to, you know, literally, and, and there were some parameters. So he wanted more frequent episodes produced mm-hmm. and and rebranding, have uh, obviously changed, dissolve what it was, yep, uh, immerse, become this, uh, be like a phoenix from the ashes and and become this new <laughs> podcast. Um, and then also have uh, advertising, and so it would be a completely different program and um, one that would then be promoted with his network because he does have uh, quite a few social media influences social influences yep that he's involved with so they would sort of spruik the the love of the podcast and then you know potentially it grow to be a a far bigger than what it is today so Mm. all those things sounded um you know from from our perspective somewhat uh interesting they were dangling carrots There, there were lots of dangling carrots yeah dangleberry carrots and um so me being me, I, I said, yeah, cool story, Dane, but let's put it in an email and then we'll have a chat, you know, like yep. until until pens put the paper and, uh, you know, <laughs> let's yeah, it's pie in the sky. Those yeah. dangling carrots are just going to remain dangling. So yeah. that was that. And um, then we got the email and it was a far cry from what actually was discussed. And, and Less than is, half. Yeah, yeah, well, probably more like a third. But yeah. anyway, um, 
and, and which is absolutely fine and that's business and all that type of stuff i completely yeah. get that and so there are a few emails back and forth and then um and then i we, we sort of discussed it and and had to think about um what would actually be required on a and and, and this is the, the honest truth of it it's sort of like it would require us to restructure what we're doing currently um, you'd probably have to scale back on some of your income at the moment to free up time to actually produce these podcasts on a weekly basis. Mm. So all the editing behind the scenes, all the recording, getting access to the studio multiple times a week, and and obviously all the networking and whatnot that goes on behind the scenes to get all the guests on. Mm. And then obviously creating the the actual questions that we ask the guests and, and everything else. And there's quite a bit that, that happens. So factoring all that in and, um, and the fact uh, that it's completely... Uh, restructuring what we've worked hard over the last close to five years to build you know we, we we had some numbers and they were in line with what he actually had suggested you know that was what it was based on but yeah. unfortunately it was the top end of what he suggested yeah yeah so he threw a few numbers around when we're in in conversation and that's what we referenced and um anyway then a then a big email came back and with lots of uh, a long thesis of an email that that pointed out all these reasons why why um you know what we were asking was unreasonable and uh why he couldn't uh, at this point in time anyway i mean you know, maybe in time it could have uh, become closer to those numbers sure but couldn't come to the party for a variety of reasons and um and then yeah we sort of wrapped things up and uh sent an email back and said okay best of luck and wish you all the best with with the chfi and uh you know your industry leader podcast mm. uh, for next year so that's there, was, pretty- there, there, there was the warning shot <laughs> if i said look uh you know you're either on the freight train or you're off it it doesn't bother me either way but we're coming yeah we're coming we're coming, we're coming. <laughs> you know and uh he, he made quite a few references that it's just business and all that type of stuff and i, I get it and for what it's worth I, i'm not in dane's position and i don't have anywhere near you know the income that he produces on, a, on an hourly uh, a minute basis for sure but whether you would uh, choose to run a business the same way is, is debatable but truth be told again uh, to use that phrase he is successful in business and there's a lot in business that he mentors so you know it may well have been a you know business decision but you know for us there's a lot of emotion that goes into the the, the podcast a lot of heart and soul that goes into it and if we are going to do that and um end something that we've that we obviously are passionate about and love doing on a weekly basis and restructure it and have sort of deadlines and everything else you know the least we can do is get paid accordingly for it but mm. um but that wasn't to be and uh and we did uh, we emailed back and we did have a little bit of humor with the email and i hope you saw the funny side in it but uh our parting comment was ps will be uh you know when the industry leader freight chain comes bearing down on us we'll be ca- we'll be sure to hop off the tracks and, and move out of the way you know in 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 the way we do things you know so i hope that was uh was taken with a with a chuckle and uh like we said in the email we wish him all the best and mm. let's see what will come of his uh industry leader podcast you know it seems to be a very popular medium for um i guess getting an awareness and a growth of a business you know the podcast these days these days more so than you know just listening to music there seems a lot of people seem to be focusing on on the mm. the, the, the podcasts so uh yeah that's, i mean uh, i think the thing for you and i rawdon was that uh i mean the podcast is therapy that's how it started uh, it started as a, a creative outlet and mm. something where we can actually just uh you know come in decompress the thongs are on the shorts are uh, on yeah and chill out and over time it's developed into something which is for myself personally i, I think if we i'm sure this goes for you as well yeah, it's yeah. such a um 
and I would recommend that's why people in the industry go out and start them. And if you're thinking about doing one, do it because not only does it create some content that you can put out there, but you develop relationships and you expand yeah. your network Absolutely. and you learn so much. It's yeah, we always a, learn a lot from our guests. Yeah, yeah. It's such a bang for buck activity to do. But as we said, as soon as Dane brought it up after we had a chuckle about him, you know, bringing something up yeah. was that for us, it has to be enjoyable. That's yeah. always been the number one thing that we've said. It's just, we just have to enjoy what we're doing mm. and then, you know, whatever happens, and, and, happens. And, and honestly, the, the dangling carrots were, okay, maybe it might not be as relaxed and enjoyable as what it is at this point in time. Mm. But if we do have five or 10 carrots in each pocket, then, <laughs> then, you know, we can put up with being, yeah. maybe not ha- having a sense of urgency to produce the, yeah. and I think the reality is, you know, although, podcasts seem to come and go there's you know there's a fair bit that does go along behind the scenes and mm. and like it's quite easy to do one or two but you know then do another you know 100 later and um you know not that we're saying ours is the benchmark of podcasts by any stretch of the imagination but we are still going and, and people still do uh, enjoy listening to what we what, what we do so um not as probably and as easy as what everyone thinks. And, and, and we also have a sound engineer. We've got Cam the Wookiee, which we... Couldn't do, yeah, couldn't know, do it without him. Go, couldn't and, it without uh, him. you know, what we probably should thank Dane for as well is just actually realising the value in it. Yeah. You know, as uh, flippant as the numbers might have been, it's still a, a bit of a kick in the ass for us, mate. We should probably, yeah. you know, pull our fingers out and actually value it a little more than what we currently do ourselves. So Yeah. And, and anyway. yeah, uh, in all honesty, that is uh, that is pretty cool that he, um, and like we said, a savvy businessman, he mm. certainly saw value in, um, you know, bearing the hatchet and uh, reconnecting and adding me back on Facebook to... Uh, yeah, I haven't... Actually, uh, you haven't accepted his <laughs> friend request yet. Well, I mean, look, Facebook's, it's not a medium well, of traffic. You've only got a minute a day. A minute There's per day. There's only so much you can do in that minute. That's right. So you'll get round to it, yeah. but all in due time. Anyway, all right. Onwards well, and upwards. Onwards and upwards. Uh, that's that. Uh, let's go to Dan Garner for uh, a very detailed uh, breakdown of protein. Well, Rawdon, this is very exciting. Mm. We've got Dan Garner on the line, and for mm. those listeners who are very new to the podcast, you can filter back. There's hundreds of them quite away, but apparently, there's we've got about ten episodes that mm. we've done with Dan in the past. We did, I think, the first time we ever did a a series of we did like a nutrition yep. series, a macro series. We went mm. through all the macros mm. um, in very sort of methodical. structured, methodical yeah. fashion, and that we found that to be a great format. And Dan was the perfect person mm. to do the job and he's uh he's back on the line ahead of what potentially could be a very exciting australian tour mm. 2019 in february mm. but um we'll unpack a bit more of that as we go dan thanks for your time mate and welcome back to the podcast hey thank you guys for having me back again i'm, I'm absolutely ecstatic to be back and uh the first 10 episodes i had an absolute blast talking shop with you guys so i'm pumped to be able to do it again with you now, a lot's probably happened on your end, Dan, and um, one of the things we spoke about briefly before we came on air was uh, this tour down under, and it'll be a Saturday-Sunday where you go through the bulk of the content, but you're mm. thinking about doing a little free Friday evening seminar talking about the transition for coaches and PTs to take their business online, and I think that's fascinating. I, I guess since we spoke last time a year ago, the actual nature of your business has probably changed quite a lot. What, what does it look like these days? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I'm one of these guys who started at the at absolutely, you know, at the very bottom. I started at a, as a Gold's Gym personal trainer. And one thing, or I mean, a few things that get you authority immediately in this industry are either A, having previous bodybuilding success, B, having previous athletic success, or C, having a PhD. If you have one of these three things, uh, people kind of already listen to you and you already have an authority presence in the industry. I had absolutely none of those things. <laughs> so I started as a personal trainer on the floor trying to get clients. And then I ended up building up my reputation um, as time went on because I was able to get people results. But I got my reputation to the point where I was able to work full time in the industry. But eventually I wanted to create a bigger impact. And of course, I wanted to make more money while I was at it. So I wanted to get into the position where I could move online. So that's really what I want to cover um, the day before the seminars really start. Really just do a free workshop on the Friday nights um, when I come down to Australia to talk about the transition. Because I know a lot of coaches yeah. want to move online. They want the freedom of creating their own schedule. They're kind of tired of doing the clients early in the morning and then having this weird break in the middle of the day and then doing their clients later on at night and being mm. in this perpetual exhaustion phase. Mm. I want to teach people how I moved online and was able to build a reputation online at the same time. So I want to provide a lot of trainers that with the free workshop the night before and then move in to your regular scheduled programming where we will unpack the training and nutrition science of what I'm doing with my top athletes. Absolutely awesome. And I would agree. There's, uh, my business is primarily online. I do skin folds, but there's no uh, walking uh, clients or athletes through through training sessions. And yeah, mm. it, I think I get a lot of interest in, in how I structure it and, and, and how I do it. Fortunately for me, you know, I did come from a bodybuilding background because, uh, you know, I don't have those other two things. But no sort of athletic experience. It was more, you know, did a bodybuilding show and he's in shape and that got my foot in the door. So you're right. It does sort of, for me anyway, it did give me a bit of uh, buy-in initially. People just assume, you know, what you're talking about. But, but, um, but yeah, it sounds like you uh, worked your way up the ranks and uh, did what, you know, what Tommy and I often say has to be done and sort of in the club building, you know, putting... Uh, putting the effort in sort of mm. uh, for, for, for many months until you get uh, start churning out some results. Yeah, exactly. And, there, you know, there's always a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. And working online in those early days, I probably stepped on every landmine that yeah. was available mm. for me mm. <laughs> when switching online. So I wanted to kind of teach people what the mistakes are, but then also how to properly avoid them. Because there's a there's a multi-step process that you should go through in order to successfully transition from in the gym to online. And there's a way in which you can avoid the landmine. So I want to be able to show people to how to do that. And Today, as far as, you know, the original question of what my business model looks like today, I actually am involved in five different companies today, and I'm able to organize and manage all of those companies at the same time, produce content for them, but still do the things that I absolutely love to do, which is work with pro athletes and get them the results that I want them to get. Mm. Uh, things have very changed cool. a lot since our, since our very first podcast, so yeah. I kind of want to catch people up to date, but then show them how to do that as well. 
Very cool. Yeah, that sounds really, really good. Let's uh, get into some content today, Dan. Now, the, I think one of the first times we got you on, we started with the macronutrient protein, the macro of, of first importance, mm. and we covered some of the basics there, but we thought we might go back to that and just relook at... Unpack it a little. A year later, what's the, the research currently saying? And then maybe a bit more about the physiology of how it's working in the body and, and how it's geared towards these athletes that you specialize in. So... Off the top, mate, in terms of protein for training individuals, are there any adjustments to those original sort of numbers that you, you gave us a year ago and, and, and anything new in the research? Yeah, maybe rattle off uh, the facts and figures that you like to use mm. for um, athletes slash gen pop because not all our – or maybe it's the same. Yeah, for sure. So whenever it comes to protein intake – you always have to consider absolutely everything. So the digestion and absorption of everything that's going on. But in terms of beyond just metabolism and getting to the actual numbers of what's going on, for grams per kilo, I'm very comfortable always staying within the 1.8 to 2.2 grams per kilo of body weight for protein intake, whether that's a pro athlete, whether that's a general population person, whether that's a business exec person, they're all going to be able to fall within that 1.8 to 2.2 grams per kilo of body weight range. Now, the things can change a little bit as it pertains to the exact demographic of the person that you're working with. So overweight people can do with a little bit less on the end of the spectrum, whereas lean people can go with a little bit more higher on the end of that spectrum, meaning overweight people can go and get away with 1.8 grams per kilo of body weight. Mm -hmm. And if we're being perfectly honest, they can get away with honestly a lot less than that due to the overall sparing effect that their body fat has on their current lean muscle mass. Essentially, they have a lot of meals already on their body. Mm -hmm. So if they end up going in a pretty severe deficit, they don't need to worry at all about dropping any kind of lean muscle mass during that process. Whereas a lot, a very lean person, perhaps getting for ready for a photo shoot, getting ready for a show, or just mm. a professional athlete. A lot of my pro athletes just walk around between eight and ten percent body fat using legitimate measuring techniques. So mm. that's where I would like them to be on the 2.2 grams per kilo per body weight per day um, in terms of overall intake. But the thing is, when it comes to that range, and I know you guys are up to date on this stuff as well, it's that range is very, very, very safe. Like, for example, for fat loss, back in the day, a lot of people would say, oh, you need so much more protein for fat loss to prevent mm. lean muscle mass loss. Mm -hmm. But we kind of don't see that <laughs> when, when you look at the entire body of literature. Like, for example, Pekoski in 2008, they had endurance athletes in a 1,000 calorie per day deficit. And beyond this, they increased their training volume at the exact same time within this deficit. And those athletes were only on a 0.82 grams per pound of body weight uh, protein intake per day, which is going to be around 1.6, 1.7 grams per kilo max. And it completely protected all of their muscle tissue. So their right. protein balance, their nitrogen balance, everything remained in check. That was Pekoski in 2008. And if you, if you look at, say, the recommendations from some strength training specialists, they would say a couple of things. 
they would say, number one, you're going to need about 4.4 grams per kilo. And number two, never do endurance work because it's so catabolic. Yeah. Yet we see in this research, Pekoski had endurance athletes in a thousand calorie deficit, which is insane. It's something none of us would even do. And yeah. only at about a 1.6, 1.7 gram per kilo body weight intake. And yet they were able to maintain all of their muscle tissue. So when, when you're working with fat loss, I think people have so much more flexibility than they think they have. Hmm. I think that the 1.8 range in terms of physiology is fine. But in terms of psychology, I think hmm. going up to 2.2 is a little bit better due to the, due to the effects on satiety. Yeah. So if you have a client and everybody suffers with adherence, if you're a bodybuilder, if you're a pro athlete, or if you're a general population, we all have those moments of weakness where the diet doesn't seem like a good idea anymore. It just, <laughs> it doesn't seem as cool as when we first started. Yeah. So in these scenarios, the 2.2 grams per kilo can be a little bit wiser for these people, just simply due to increasing the satiety index within the brain, where yeah. we're allowing the body to feel fuller, longer. And when it comes down to this game, energy balance is so important. And why it's so important is because we see time and time again that consistency is what brings results and not intensity. So able to maintain a diet for an extended period of time, we can essentially use that 1.8 to 2.2 grams per kilo of body weight of protein. We mm -hmm. can use that range as not necessarily a physiological advantage because 1.8 seems to cover all the bases but we can use it as a psychological advantage and or perhaps an adherence advantage by going up to 2.2 or even more mm -hmm. if you have to in order to produce more satiety so yeah i like that range for everybody but i like that range different for different reasons under mm. the art of coaching and not necessarily the science of coaching because we yes. use that range to allow people to adhere and then when it comes to muscle gaining now that we've kind of covered what we would do basically 1.8 to 2.2 mm. we've covered a little bit about fat loss when it comes to muscle gain i personally as a coach i'm a fan of using the lower end of the spectrum I like to use about a 1.8 gram per kilo of body weight, maybe two grams per kilo of body weight. This would actually increase if they are a drug using athlete. Um, no, mm -hmm. no, a full disclosure here. Yeah. But um, if they're a muscle gaining athlete, the and they're natural, using the lower end of the spectrum is a little bit better because they are natural. So that means you can add more fats and more carbohydrates to the deal because if they're in a muscle gaining phase, they're either in maintenance or hypercalorism, which means that the protein sparing effect of their other nutrients is already protecting their lean muscle tissue. So we don't need as much protein as we think we do because the protein sparing effect is already allowing us to protect our muscle. So then we might as well just get more fuel from the fat mm. and carbohydrates to produce better quality workouts, to produce more muscle protein synthesis through training than through nutrition. Because we're kind of hitting a limit point at 1.8 grams per kilo, especially if we're in a hypercaloric state. Does that all make sense? Yeah, yeah. Dan. Um, protein sparing, uh, some of our listeners may have uh, heard that thrown around a few times. Um, do you want to just clarify mm. how those other, is it, uh, because a certain amount of protein would be normally oxidized for energy. So if you have 
the other macronutrients there you don't need to oxidize as much a protein like explain the protein sparing what what's that all about yeah yeah i probably should have explained that a little bit better um but when it comes to protein sparing essentially you're using other nutrients to spare the protein that you have in your body so essentially what we're doing is we're utilizing other nutrients to act as fuel sources for our physical energy expenditure or, for example, say for our metabolic rate, use those things as an allowance for energy expenditure in any form, whether that's through our basal metabolic rate or whether that's through physical energy expenditure, yeah. so that we don't have to oxidize our own muscle tissue for energy. So what happens if you're in a diet, but not necessarily just a diet? I think this is something a lot of people get confused about. They'll think mm. that that, um, for example, a negative nitrogen balance will happen to certain individuals in a study just because of their protein intake. But that's not true. Mm -hmm. You can have a negative nitrogen balance in a study just because your, your training program is way too extreme. Mm -hmm. Or you can have a nitrogen balance disruption due to your stress levels. You can have a nitrogen balance disruption for other reasons outside of just protein intake, but especially due to just total energy intake. So mm. these things we have to take into consideration. And when it comes to protein sparing, I think what's most important for the listeners to understand in reference to protein sparing is A, it's simply the macronutrients uh, taking the load for the body so that we can use protein to maintain and or gain muscle tissue as opposed to utilize it for as an energy source. But B, it's very important to understand the difference between a protein deficit and protein sparing because mm. protein deficit can create that nitrogen balance decrease or a total body decrease in muscle mass mm. whereas protein sparing that's something that's going to come from proteins and carbs but no amount of proteins and carbs that you take in is going to make up for a protein deficit diet if that makes yeah. sense yep. mm. because yep. We, we've seen all the way back is actually McCarger and Millward, and both studies were done in 1989. They were looking at it at this time. And what they found, I mean, this is way back when now, they found that the difference in nitrogen sparing effects between carbs and fats within a diet are basically ne negligible. So when you're looking mm. at the ratio of carbs to fat in a diet and what's going to have a greater protein sparing effect, it doesn't actually matter. But one of the biggest things to take home is that neither actually spares protein. Only protein will ever spare protein. The protein sparing idea kind of essentially comes from a wrong interpretation of nitrogen balance literature, showing that more lean mass is lost in more severe calorie deficits. But a very simple, a simple explanation for that finding is more total body mass you lose, the more lean mass you're going to lose. Period. If you're in a steep energy deficit, you're going to lose muscle mass no matter what. But the only thing that's going to allow you to actually keep your muscle tissue is protein. So I just want to I just want to really point out that I think people get a little carried away when it comes to protein sparing because nutrition always kind of works within what's in trend right now and what's cool to talk about right now. Mm. I think a lot of people can kind of mistake that. Um, only protein is going to keep protein on your body. And that although sparing has an effect, that effect, of course, it will have a diminishing effect if your protein intake is so crappy. So if yeah. you're having like one gram per 
kilo per day or something, you're getting way, way too less. And I don't care how many carbs you have. This is something that's not going to suffice mm. a Rodden workout or a Tom workout mm. or a Ben Pakulski workout. Hell no. Good luck. You know, if you're going to go to Ben's muscle camp or you're going to go to Milos's muscle camp, good luck hanging around one gram per kilo mm. of body weight of protein intake. Yeah, so, look. you know, having said that, having clarified that, I do think carbohydrates are the ideal source of food to prevent protein oxidation as they are most relevant towards the activity levels of the listeners and to the resistance training population and pretty much for all sports. Mm. So when we're playing a game of supply and demand in terms of energy expenditure, we need to use carbs to fuel the energy that we need to fuel, use carbs to fuel energy during physical activity so that our body won't need to tap into its protein stores. So although total energy intake in terms of fats and carbs doesn't necessarily matter. I think if we're looking at optimal values of what's going to have the greatest protein sparing effect during physical energy expenditure, mm. it would be carbohydrates because it's a fuel sourcing is a supply and demand game. And when mm. you're doing hypertrophy strength, hypertrophy training or strength training, or if you're a hockey player, or if you're an MMA fighter, Carbohydrates are going to be the preferred fuel source of the body. So in turn, that's going to be the best protein-sparing nutrient that you're going to get as well. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes a lot of sense. If we just take a, a step back on the protein-sparing, we go to the bottom end of that range, say 1.6, um, 1 yeah. uh, something like that, and lean muscle mass, maintaining that is or building more mass is not really a priority for the body. Like what's the hierarchy of usage that the actual proteins go into before building muscle mass in terms of the physiology like we're talking about why is it so essential that we have that base amount of protein yeah well the base amount of protein i kind of think is the base amount of is important as the base amount of anything you know we've always kind of heard a lot of times that people will say the greek for protein is proteos, which means it comes first. But the other macronutrients provide a wide spectrum of vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, fiber, and phytonutrients. And they're also protein sparing as well, which makes our needs for protein actually less. Mm. So, you know, it's kind of hard for me to justify the common quote that everybody tends to say that protein takes importance over other macronutrients because nut nutrition and biology never oper operates on extremes. It just never operates that way. And whenever we do operate on extremes, we tend to always get bit in the ass in terms of a negative feedback loop. That's just, yeah. if you follow the history of nutrition, we always get really excited about something and then we take a lot of it and then we end up realizing that that was stupid and that we, yeah. should, we should always listen to biology and, uh, and not get too excited when, when new research comes out. For example, Jose Antonio's research on super high protein intakes. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's important to be able to maintain a level thinking ground, a critical mindset throughout this entire thing. So I would want listeners to understand that. But when it comes to the importance of protein and, and essentially what type of me metabolic role it plays in the body, it does a whole lot of things. Protein is very important. It's something that allows us to create enzymes. Enzymes are just proteins and enzymes essentially do everything. They are, they are the catalyst that allows us to build muscle mass 
fast. They allows us to break carbohydrates and fats down. They allow us to convert protein, carbohydrates, and fat into forms of ATP. So we're able to make enzymes from protein. Protein is also a combination of 20 different amino acids. So a lot of people already know, and this is kind of another quoted term that's been used for decades now, as the amino acids are the building blocks of protein. Mm -hmm. So when you essentially combine 20 different Lego pieces, and all these Lego pieces are different amino acids, and then you put them all together, that's what makes a protein molecule. It's mm -hmm. 20 different amino acids put together. Mm -hmm. And we've got a lot of different amino acids that do really important things. For example, tryptophan. Tryptophan's a precursor that we need as raw material in order to make serotonin and melatonin, which are super important for reducing anxiety, but also improving sleep length and sleep quality within the body. Protein also contains um, L-tyrosine and phenylalanine, for example, and they allow us to make adrenaline and noradrenaline, or uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine, a little bit more of a technical term. And uh, protein contains glutamine, it's important for immune function. Protein mm. contains so many different amino acids that have such a wide range of physiological outcomes and or physiological consequences within the body. I think mm. it's really important that we always look at the whole data before we get too excited about things. And this kind of brings up to mind right now. We, we've seen in research that actually in special consideration scenarios, excess levels of L-carnitine can actually increase atherosclerosis in people. And atherosclerosis is a disease where plaque builds up inside of our arteries. So arteries are blood vessels that carry oxygen-rich molecules to our heart and other parts of the body. And plaque is essentially just made up of fat, cholesterol, calcium, and other kind of random substances found in the blood. But carnitine, it's this strange scenario. Now, this was in mice um, within this research, but it was found that the gut microbiome essentially doesn't like carnitine. And the gut microbiome metabolized carnitine to emit something known as trimethylamine N-oxide. So I know that's kind of a mouthful, trimethylamine N-oxide. It's just TMAO for short. But TMAO is a pro-atherogenic species. So it actually hardens the walls of our arteries by adding plaque to it. So protein is something that, although it does so many good things in our body, we always learn time and time and time again that we can't get too extreme with mm. certain amino acids mm. or certain anything because the nutrition industry kind of oversimplifies things. They, they, they look at one thing and think it's the result of everything. Like one antioxidant from an orange does this or one amino acid from protein does this. But uh, in my experience, looking at all the research and going through the years of looking not just at present nutrition research, but the nutrition history of everything that we've gone through, we tend to learn the same lessons all the time. So protein is very important, but more is not better. So mm, yeah. it's. Uh, I, I hope I answered well, the question there. Yeah, yeah that's great. Uh, Rodan, are you making notes here, mate? More is not always better. No, okay. I, I disagree, man. I disagree, but we'll let that one slide. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, you opened a can of worms there, Tommy, with uh, what does protein do, but I think you covered uh, probably a, a grain of sand on a beach of all the things yes, that protein actually do in the body. Enough bullet points for our coaches out there to just mm. make a few notes so their clients can 
understand why they're having the protein targets that they're being Well, set. they become yes. doctors after hearing that. Of and course. They can, professors, dietitians. They can, dietitians, <laughs> yeah. they can lecture. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> before we move on from uh, the 1.8 to uh, 2.2, let's talk. Uh, you, you spoke about the obese and, and, and lean athletes. Let's talk about a couple of outliers that, uh, from memory, do require a little more. Uh, the dreaded uh, block your ears, Tommy, vegetarians and vegans of the world. You know, we pity pity their souls. But if they do choose <laughs> to exist like that, are they a demographic that, uh, because they're getting uh, that inferior protein sources, typically they need to shoot a little higher than the 1.8 or perhaps to that 2.2, still within that, that range. And, and also the older demographic they seem to be uh they seem to probably be eating more than than what um they should be simply because i think the the machinery doesn't work so well and they don't uh they don't uh use sufficiently the, the protein they're taking or from what i've read or seen you want to just uh, clear those points up yeah sure i mean you hit the nail on the head man uh, that that's essentially exactly right and that's been my interpretation as well so the two populations that could benefit from a little bit more protein because the ranges that i talked about before they're essentially for healthy individuals mm -hmm. without um, any kind of special considerations there's always special consideration scenarios and that's why i always say it's so important to have a coach and not just a calculator um, yeah. You know, you can't just have a macro coach. A macro coach is nothing more than a calculator. Yeah. It's, a, it, it's a calculator is all it is. A coach allows you to create context and results are found in context. That's just the truth of the matter. But when it comes to some populations that might need a little bit more... Um, old people or older people, I guess I shouldn't just say hey. old people. <laughs> Tommy looked at me when you said that. <laughs> I think that uh, when it comes, when you're looking at all the literature and you're breaking things down, the vegetarian and or vegan population, but kind of not the vegetarian population, they're easy. They can have cottage cheese, they can have whey protein, they can have casein, they yeah. can have eggs, egg yep. whites. That's actually pretty easy. Um, so they can stay within the normal 1.8 to 2.2 gram per kilo of body weight if they're getting those things in. But it's more essentially the vegan population that might need a little bit more. Uh, not necessarily because their protein is bad, but because the digestive efficiency of that protein. So what we see when you look not just at clinical trials, but just at biochemistry, you'll see that animal protein digestibility, the efficiency is upwards to 95%. Whereas vegetarian proteins only rank in at about 80%. So although the amino acids, they're a little bit different when you compare them on protein quality scores, such as biological value, protein digested yeah. amino acid score, net protein utilization. There's a lot of different protein quality rankings. They're all kind of wishy-washy to be honest but they, they they exist and the plant proteins fall very low on almost all of them and things like eggs whey and meat and beef and these things fall very high and that's essentially due to the efficiency of digestion and not any kind of uniqueness to the protein itself so okay. due to digestive efficiency from a biochemistry perspective 
plant-based eaters should be on the high range of 2.2. And I would honestly, I would be very comfortable bringing them to 2.6 in scenarios as well, just to ensure that their protein balance within their body stays in check for their goals and for the overall digestive efficiency of what they're eating. Mm -hmm. So I think that vegetarians should be higher, definitely, due to plain old biochemistry. Mm -hmm. But then another reason they should be a little bit higher is because a lot of vegetarians don't necessarily know how to create complete protein sources with their meals. Um, a lot of times you want to create what's known as a complementary protein source. So combining peas and rice is essentially creating a complete protein source. So something that would kind of look like an animal source. Uh, another one is combining beans and rice. So you can go, you could just have Mexican night every night and just have beans and rice yeah. mm. all the time, get that protein intake in. Uh, quinoa is kind of a unique one where you'll have a complete protein source kind of just in one shot. So it's, 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 it's an intelligence behind creating your meals mm. appropriately, but then setting your protein intake goals a little bit higher for that vegetarian population. And then for the elderly population, not going to name any names here, mm -hmm. but for the elderly population, <laughs> they should be shooting for at least 0.4 grams per kilo of body weight per meal. That's what's going to allow them to maximally stimulate protein synthesis per meal, whereas a younger individual, as per Stu Phillips's research, is only going to need about 0.3 grams per kilo of body weight per meal. So that is sort of making sure they, they get a little more protein in, I guess, but on a per meal basis rather than just looking at total for the day. Yeah, well, from everything I've seen, I, I think that the total for the day should be greater for vegetarians and vegans, but the total for the day for older individuals doesn't need to be bigger. Just the per meal dose yeah. needs to be bigger in order to maximally stimulate protein synthesis. So they don't necessarily need more in a total sense of 24-hour intake, but they need more per meal in order to overcome the type of anabolic resistance that comes with being an older individual due to uh, decreased metabolism, due to decreased enzyme activity, due to a lower testosterone levels. It's quite multifactorial mm. due to increased inflammation seems to play a part in this anabolic resistance as well, though we're not really sure yet. But I don't think that it increases your total need just per meal to overcome the anabolic resistance associated with being older. Okay. So with the muscle protein synthesis, does that sort of occur on a spectrum? So say an older individual, uh, I don't know, Rawdon, uh, we'll use you as an example. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. If, 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 I can if, assure you my levels of everything are yes. superior. <laughs> There's no declining of levels of hormones of anything, my friend. That's very, very true. But let's say Rawdon has a 100-gram piece of chicken in mm -hmm. one meal, and then the next meal he has a big 300-gram bit of steak so, you know, he might maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis with that steak, but he just sort of slightly elevates it with the chicken. I mean, does it exist on a spectrum? I believe it does ex exist on a spectrum. And when it comes to protein intake, that the, the big steak can do as well. Because we actually saw, um, it was actually breaking research at the time in 2016 with Kim Al that muscle protein breakdown 
it's just as important to take care of as muscle protein synthesis. So it was found actually in Kim's research that 70 grams of protein in a meal was superior to 40 grams of protein in a meal in terms of whole body protein balance throughout the day, even though the two meals provided identical muscle protein synthesis responses. So muscle protein synthesis mm. was maximized at 40 grams within the meal. But 70 grams created a better result for whole body protein balance throughout the day. And what was determined at the end of the study is that 70 gram, the 70 grams of protein meal, although it didn't have a greater muscle protein synthetic response, it had a much greater muscle protein breakdown fighting response due to more amino acid availability within the bloodstream for a longer period of time. Yeah. And this mm. was also in resistance trained healthy subjects. So it's like the perfect demographic that we want. So yes to the question of, I believe muscle protein synthesis operates on a spectrum because something is always better than nothing. Yeah. You're always gonna be able to move the spectrum a little bit. I actually think most things on nutrition operate at least on some sort of a spectrum and that's very little um, on off switch. I don't think it's really just positive negative. I think most yeah. things operate on a spectrum, but muscle protein breakdown is not to be overlooked. It's something I've been saying for years, years and years and years. I think actually we talked about it um, way back when yeah. <laughs> on an earlier episode between us, but uh, muscle protein breakdown is so important. So that big steak would have done rod and well. Yeah. The th and, and if you were to delve a little deeper into that, yeah. is that simply because uh, a 70 gram uh, protein serve and a big steak just took longer to digest so that hyperamino yes, acid exactly. is just in the it blood It just for took much longer. longer to digest. So mm, the, yeah. the idea or the ridiculousness that the it still gets said today that you can only absorb 20 grams of protein per meal or yeah. sometimes it's 30 grams of protein per meal depending on what bro you're talking to yeah. but they'll, they'll mention one or the other and it's just it, it's crazy it's just this idea of people misrepresenting muscle protein synthesis versus protein utilization <laughs> two very different things you're only going to stimulate so much based on what essentially the hormonal milieu and the certain intracellular pathways with things like mTOR and everything that goes with muscle protein synthesis, all that stuff, it can get super complicated. And uh, perhaps Luke Tullock is a guy who could really, <laughs> really break that down into different si situations and scenarios. Mm. But you're essentially going to hit a cap when it comes to that protein synthetic response. And from there, muscle protein breakdown and even the protein sparing stuff that we've talked about can have a huge effect for people who aren't otherwise utilizing that. And, and I guess the thing to uh, hit home there for our for our listeners that um, they may not be aware of is that uh, you know accruing hypertrophy over time is essentially making sure synthesis exceeds breakdown. So yes. you know making note on uh, anything that can uh, suppress breakdown could be worthwhile in the in the overall scheme of things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when it comes to building muscle or maintaining muscle, if, if we're breaking it down to its simplest form, it's simply muscle protein synthesis versus muscle protein breakdown. If we can spend more time in a state uh, of our positive fractional synthetic rate versus a negative yeah. fractional breakdown rate, then we're able to do things for our body, for our physiology, or for our clients that's going to be able to get them better results over a period of time because because it's not just muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown, but we also have to consider the protein redistribution effect if we don't take care of that appropriately. 
So mm. if, uh, if, if I do a squat workout today, that's 10 sets of 10, old school German volume training. If I do that 10 sets of 10 German volume training of squats today, well, I'm gonna be recovering for that workout for quite a bit of time. Probably gonna be restructuring all the different connective tissue and skeletal muscle and different immune system reactions within my muscle. Probably gonna be happening for up to 72 hours or so, I would be guessing, depending on the volume and intensity of the workout. Yep. But the thing that happens that a lot of people will forget is that that process is 72 hours, mm -hmm. meaning it's 24 hours a day. And your legs only ever care, not just your legs, your biology only ever cares about survival. It does not care about getting a teardrop in the VMO, does not care about getting a biceps peak, doesn't care about a hamstring glute tie-in, doesn't care about any of these things. All it cares about is survival. So when you create a stressor and an inflammatory response in the form of intense physical activity within a muscle group of your body, your body is going to want to recover that muscle tissue 24 hours a day until it is recovered because it thinks that a saber-toothed tiger just jumped on you and that you needed your legs in order to survive another mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. So it wants to recover that as much as possible so that that stressor, if it ever happens to come again, it will be ready for it. Your body's going to be ready to survive another day. But it will do this at the expense of other areas of your body. So if you still have a massive muscle protein synthetic response within your quadriceps, your body can very much say, oh, you know what? I haven't used my rear delt in about a couple of weeks now. So I'm going to redistribute this muscle from my rear delt over to my quadriceps so mm. that my quadriceps can survive another day because that's what allowed me as the organism as a whole to survive. So essentially, your legs will recover and your legs will actually hypertrophy, but you won't have a gain in total protein balance. You actually wouldn't have built any muscle tissue. Yeah. You just redistributed muscle from one area to the other because your muscle protein synthesis was something you cared about. Let's say you had a protein, a post-workout protein shake, but you didn't have your muscle protein breakdown in check by having adequate meals throughout the day. So I guess for all our listeners who are training, um, then pretty much there's always something that's going to have an elevated synthetic rate, yeah? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You, you want to be able to try and to optimize that as much as humanly possible. Now, just simply being in a state of hypocalorism has been demonstrated to reduce MPS by 15%, no matter what you do. So you're, yeah. you're constantly fighting a battle. So if you're in a hypercaloric state, muscle protein synthesis, or I guess I should say muscle protein breakdown is not that big of a deal. Yeah. Uh, that's where it's not that big of a deal. You have so many calories floating around. The The idea of muscle loss is, is almost negligible. Yeah. But if you're in a state of dieting, that's when you really got to start caring about things like meal frequency and making sure amino acids are available in the bloodstream. Yeah. Why don't, we, why don't we go to that and, and talk about timing a little bit? Rodney, did you want to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, make a note there. You must use all muscles at all times because <laughs> if you don't use a particular muscle, <laughs> it could shrink and yes. uh you know amino acids could be going and i can't afford that tom yeah, you yeah. must use muscle every day yeah. uh yeah like uh, before we go i just want to get we'll go to protein timing but yes. the, the 70 gram greater breakdown hypo amino acid for a longer period 
is there times of the day, and I'm sort of leaning towards evening pre-bed, but is there times of the day where perhaps eating a, a larger intake of, of protein, a more bolus dose could be more beneficial than at other times? Yeah, I think that if you are going to bed, that's definitely advantageous. And I am a fan of utilizing casein protein. Uh, the The idea that casein protein is bad for us, I think, is kind of silly. Um, I, I know that that gets said a lot, but um, casein protein has excellent literature behind it. And I've got, I keep lab analysis constantly rolling on my high-level clients. I've never seen an issue once with casein. So uh, I'm a big fan of utilizing casein in order to create a offset effect on muscle protein breakdown while we sleep because it takes so long to digest and assimilate throughout the body. So I think that and not necessarily bolus doses of protein. Yeah, if there was one time or I guess two times that bolus doses of protein could be potentially advantageous, in my opinion, would be immediately post-workout in advanced athletes and in the elderly population. I think that could be one area for a larger dose of protein could be advantageous, but then also before bed just to help fight that muscle protein breakdown um, during sleep. But if you add, for example, fiber and fats to the pre-bed meal, those quite effectively slow the rate of digestion quite efficiently. So, so provided you had, say, a 0.4 grams per kilo of body weight meal before bed, I think that's going to be, if you add some raw nuts and, say, some vegetables to that, you know, maybe let's throw the meat and nut breakfast before bed mm-hmm. and not just upon waking. That, that could be something that could really help us fight protein, muscle protein breakdown throughout the night. And then uh, the immediately post-workout in those advanced individuals and older individuals, that could be something as well to, to offset that degree of damage that they did to their physiology. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. All right. And what, what about getting back to uh, Tommy's point for exploring timing throughout the day? You know, is it this three-hour period we should have it? Does it depend on, um, you know, can we do, uh, is there two meals in the research doesn't work well? Is 10 small meals not as good? Is there a sort of a... Uh, a nice uh, number some some you know three to five meals like is there something that um stands the test of time in regards to assuming the 0.4 or 0.3 for younger uh, grams uh protein per kilo body weight like what timing throughout the day is uh have you seen uh is best yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an awesome question. There, there's a, If there's one area where I wish they could fund a lot of research, it'd be in meal frequency because although we have some good data in here, we don't have near as much as I would like for a conclusive details. But for what we have right now, I know that sounds like kind of a cop out. I kind of hate it when people say more research is needed. It's kind of yeah. just like, uh, I, don't, I don't really know for now, but this is what I got. But it, it's, it's honestly the truth when it comes to meal frequency. I wish there was more funding in this area. But from everything that we've got right now, I like the sweet spot of four to six meals per day. It allows for maximal muscle protein synthetic response to be seen. It allows for maximal um, fighting of the muscle protein breakdown. And ideally, people eating every two to four hours at a four to six meals per day frequency is the sweet spot. We're kind of optimizing the the anabolic window that I do believe is absolutely real, by the way. Mm-hmm. And we're optimizing um, getting in as many muscle protein synthetic responses throughout the day. You know, we've seen with Atherton's research within the muscle full effect that um, you can't just 
just eat 17 times per day and expect the same response. You need that little bit of an emptying period. Um, and we can go into that if you'd like as well. But the, the emptying period um, of muscle tissue being broken down, and when I say emptying, I apologize for anybody um, unfamiliar with what I'm talking about here, the emptying essentially of amino acids from the skeletal muscle tissue. There are certain times where amino acids are filling up the muscle tissue and then other times where they are empty. But you can't create a greater muscle protein synthetic response by taking infinite amino acids. Mm. So this is why that 70 gram per meal didn't perform better than the 40 gram per 40 grams of protein meal in terms of muscle protein synthesis yeah. or muscle protein growth because that muscle the synthetic response was maximized you're not going you're only mm. going to get so much growth from a muscle and then any more than that is not going to be able to be accepted in terms of creating a greater synthetic response and it's instead going to go fight muscle protein breakdown which in my opinion is equally as important but the four to six times per day allowance tends to maximize everything physiologically and psychologically you get enough meals per day to remain um, satiated you get enough meals per day to keep happy you get your muscle protein synthesis response but then you also have enough opportunities to fight muscle protein breakdown so that that protein redistribution doesn't occur again so that's my okay. sweet spot that's where i like to keep my clients so let's say we take Rawdon A and Rawdon B, mm -hmm. and over a 30-day period, he gets exactly the same amount of calories. Uh, Rawdon A, Rawdon B, they get exactly mm -hmm. the same amount of calories, the same macros. Rawdon A has uh, six meals a day. Rawdon B has only three meals a day. In the wash, how much of a difference do you think we would see between the two in terms of results over that period of time? Are we are we controversial splitting Tommy. hairs, or is it significant yeah. enough to? Or, and also, will I chime in there? And is it more applicable to the more advanced uh, mm. you are? Th these sorts of things start to matter a little bit more when yeah. you're getting to your maximum potential. Yes, I, I agree definitely with you, Rod. And the more advanced you get, the more it matters um, psychologically and physiologically. The more advanced you get, the harder it is to make gains, the more you're willing to do in order to make more progress, mm. period. You're willing to be more disciplined and more prepared and work with a coach who seeks optimal instead of let's go have fun in the gym. So I think that, that, that it makes sense for to be more advanced in terms of this kind of approach psychologically speaking but also physiologically speaking as well because they need to take advantage of everything in order to keep moving forward so mm. when you're looking at rod and a and rod and b i don't think that you'd see much of a difference at all if even in an advanced individual i don't think you'd see much of a difference at all in four to eight weeks but this is something that I would see in six to eight months or even 12 months. Yeah. So if you had two biological twins, one was eating three meals a day, the other was eating six meals per day, but they had identical caloric and protein, carbohydrate and fat distribution within their diet. This is something that you're going to see over the long term, because even if you're losing the muscle protein breakdown battle, it's not like you lose a pound of muscle or a kilo of muscle every two weeks. Mm. 
It's not even close. We're talking grams. We're mm. talking things that you would need to see in an MRI machine or a DEXA with like weekly measures and then try and differentiate. Even if you're using DEXA, you have to differentiate glycogen storage and yeah. anything else that could have affected lean mass at that time. It could have been water for God's sakes. Yeah. So it's, it's so hard to measure yeah. that kind of outcome, but purely based on theory of biochemistry. I, I think we could safely we could safely say that this is an outcome we would see a difference in in probably about six months because one is superior to the other in terms of rock solid physiology, but it's so hard to detect and control for all factors that affect muscle protein synthesis and breakdown, such as hypercalorism, stress, hydration, even. Um, what kind of sleep you got last night? I mean, a lot of these things muddy the waters and don't give clear answers, which makes obsessive people like me crazy. But <laughs> when, when, when you get down to the brass tacks of it, there would be a difference. And that's always the difference between good and optimal. Yeah. And I think that's um, that's the take home message there. It's sort of uh, do everything well. And then when you want to take your physique to that next level, that's where you you really start dotting I's and, and crossing T's yeah. and, and you do have to give the process time. Um, yeah, very, very cool. Time and cool consistency. Point now, you mentioned amino acids a few times there, Dan. Why don't we touch base on branched-chain amino acids versus yeah. the essential amino acids? Do you use them with your clients? Do you have a preference? And uh, Yeah, and do you advocate? Uh, and does it, I guess, depend on training session, what style of training it is? But do you like... Um, BCAs or EAAs or, or whey or something uh, in carbs. I think we loosely covered this last time, but do you want to recap that, what you like to do uh, intra-session and um, is the caveat, you know, what you consume pre? Like, let's break that down for, mm. our, for our listeners who are, uh, are putting two scoops of uh, BCAAs into the shaker <laughs> and about to train. <laughs> Burst that bubble. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So I was the guy advocating against BCAAs before advocating against BCAAs was cool. <laughs> yeah, that's what <laughs> I, I thought. I've been saying that for a long time now. Um, I just didn't really get it. You know, I, I didn't really get it um, in, in terms of how much data I was supposed to ignore in order to validify my strategy of taking 40 grams of BCAs per workout. Didn't make mm -hmm. any sense. So I just, I, I, I had enough of it. And I was advocating, I was saying two things before it was cool. I was saying carbs don't make you fat. And I was saying that BCAAs aren't going to make you jacked. I was saying that years ago. And at the time, I was some sort of a cool rebel. But now, but now everything is kind of caught up. Thank goodness. And um, people are having more carbs now and less less people are taking branched-chain amino acids. I think the general population still loves BCAAs. Um, the, I mean, when I walk into a store and look at the supplement shelf, it kind of just tells me the only things that get shelf space are what sells. Mm. And BCAAs are all over the place still. So I, if, if I haven't already alluded to it, I don't use BCAAs with my athletes <laughs> or with yeah. my clientele. I, I simply don't. I am a fan, though, of essential amino acids, and I'm a fan of whey protein isolate. So I'll essentially, my kind of hierarchy, if you had to ask me, <clears throat> I like whey protein isolate, number one, and I like essential amino acids, number two. 
So I like whey protein isolate number one because we do get all 20 amino acids. And uh, it's just from pattern recognition of reading a billion studies and being a psychopath person who never leaves his office and just reads research, I've seen so many times that when we isolate nutrients, we end up losing the battle. It just seems to always happen when we isolate nutrients and overdose on them that it always see we always just seem to lose the battle. But I like whey isolate number one because we're going to max out muscle protein synthetic response with it anyways. So we might as well max out MPS and have all the amino acids around for actual skeletal muscle construction mm-hmm. um, instead of just three. Because I think that's one of the main flaws of branch chain amino acids. I mean, there's a million flaws with branch chain amino acids. Yeah. But one of the biggest flaws is this idea that we followed biochemistry in the wrong way. So when you have protein, it's going to be broken down in the mouth and you're going to chew it. You're going to break it down. You're going to go through the cephalic phase, yada, yada, yada. You're going to enter the stomach. The pepsinogen and hydrochloric acid are going to break it down. That's going to be secreted from the chief cells. You're going to move into the small intestine and then enzymes like trypsin, chymotrypsin, proteoelastase, and polypeptidase. These are all going to break down the amino acids. But at that point, you're left with a few peptides and some free-form amino acids. And your small intestine is going to take about 50% of the amino acids that you just ate. Mm. And then your liver, after that, is going to, through transamination and deamination, it's going to take about another 25% of those amino acids. Mm. So all that's left after the small intestine and the liver are done with it, it's about 25% of the amino acids that you ate. And of that remaining 25%, most of it's BCAAs. So I think a lot of oversimplification was seen in that, okay, if BCAAs are the dominant thing circulating within the bloodstream after metabolization, then they must be the most important for skeletal muscle tissue. But what we seem Mm. to find is that they're important for stimulus of muscle muscle protein synthesis, but they don't provide all the amino acids to actually build that skeletal muscle. So what the kind of analogy that I'd want people to utilize here is how you can have a construction worker ready to work, but if he doesn't have all the tools and bricks and mortar that he needs to build a building, then he's still kind of useless. And that's what branched-chain amino acids are very much like. They stimulate muscle protein synthesis, but then they also don't have the accompanying amino acids that are supposed to be there to actually build skeletal muscle. You've got a construction worker with no raw material, and we need both the stimulus for growth, but also the raw material to actually grow in Mm. order for that to happen. And whey protein isolate provides all of that. And it also metabolizes very quickly. You're still going to get the same muscle protein synthetic response. And high doses of BCAAs have also been connected to increasing ammonia within the body. And a lot of people don't know that ammonia is connected with central nervous system fatigue. So high levels of BCAAs, increasing ammonia, ammonia increasing central nervous system fatigue, and then ultimately, what do we have? We've got a more fatigued nervous system. We don't have more muscle growth. We have a construction worker with no raw materials, and it costs us $70. So (laughs) (laughs) in in my mind, I'm kind of just like, what are we doing here? 
Hmm. So let, let's get a pro, let's get five pounds or whatever it is, two kilos of protein powder for less money hmm. and get a way better response from it. Cause we've got our construction worker, we've got our raw materials. And then we also, what we know from research is that when you have isoleucine, valine, and leucine, which are the branched chain amino acids, yes, they create ammonia, but when they are accompanied by the other amino acids, there's a detoxification effect of the accompanying ammonia. So when you have whey protein isolate, you don't have the elevations in ammonia that you would otherwise see with branched chain amino acids. So it's like a complete no-brainer for me. So that, that's my hierarchy. I like whey protein isolate, number one, essential amino acids, and I kind of only ever use them if somebody, if I feel somebody has a sensitivity to dairy. Yeah. And then I'll use essential amino acids because uh, at least we're getting a lot more, not just construction workers, but also yeah. the raw material. And then worst case scenario um, is branch chain amino acids. But I mean, that worst case scenario doesn't even come because there's no yeah. reason not to use EAAs. And I think another thing, I mean, you said there's a long list of uh, reasons not to use BCAs, but I, I vaguely recall... Uh, issues with it uh, triggering synthesis, but in the absence of the, all the other amino acids, it's sort of uh, the the example of the cleaving the, the the posterior delt, and it will sort of it will get once it's switched on, it'll get the amino acids, but at the result of uh, breakdown. So, you know, sipping BCAAs throughout the day uh, in the, in that context is switching synthesis on all the time, but in the absence of uh, of, of the, raw materials, or, or raw materials yeah. that. You switch it on, it's like, okay, we've got to, you know, we need the amino acids <laughs> now. Let's start breaking down. So you're actually enhancing uh, breakdown. breakdown. In one particular study, I think they they sort of threw around those accusations as well. So another another sort of question mark as to, you know, whether sipping uh, BCAAs throughout the day is a good thing, you know, stimulating yeah. synthesis. Is That's that absolutely right. If, if you give the construction worker a job to do and he's got no raw materials, he's got to seek it elsewhere. Mm. As stimulus happens, right? Biology wants survival. There's probably something sore on you at the time because you're only going to take BCAAs if you're training hard. Yeah. So then you're actually encouraging protein mm. redistribution, which is very silly in, in terms of actual physiology. You know, lots of times... You know, the three of us can sit around and talk and we'll sound like Mythbusters, but mm. all we're actually doing is talking about physiology or talking about biochemistry. Mm. When, when you understand these pathways of metabolization, you can sound like a Mythbuster, but it's something that's been in a textbook for 30 years. There, there's, there's a lot of things that um, allow you to navigate new research if you just understand how the human body works. Like if, if we could go on further, branched chain amino acids have also actually been used in, as an appetite tight stimulant in anorexic folks uh -oh. this is actually used clinically this is used mm. in hospitals so branched chain amino acids has been used to stimulate appetite in anorexics yet we have people on bodybuilding diets taking bcaas <laughs> and they're already starving yeah. <laughs> what are we doing yeah, Crazy. <laughs> yeah look you it's know? it's fascinating dan and um we're just rapidly running out of time here yeah. it's a shame because we could talk about so much more but one thing apart from all the solid facts and figures you've rattled off today is I think a bit of a big picture understanding that all of these nutrients work in a synergy. Mm. The human body is perfect. Nothing is wasted. Everything is utilized. Mm. Once you understand it, everything mm. seems to, to make and sense. And there's no there's no sneaky way around things. There's feedback loop on, uh, onto feedback loop. Yeah. On the feed. You get rid of one feedback loop and there's another one, one lurking. <laughs> it's going to get you anyway. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's always the case. And it's not just protein. Feedback loops are everywhere. If you're going to high-dose curcumin, if you're going to high-dose leucine, if you're going to high-dose some resveratrol, there's always a feedback loop. Mm. So just make sure if new studies ever come out that we just keep our critical mindset and we understand biology doesn't operate on extremes. Yeah. If you can hold true to those statements – you're going to be you're going to be good and you're going to make a lot of decisions in your coaching career awesome. okay absolutely awesome all right so let's uh, wrap up the protein segment uh today so for our listeners uh if they're interested in uh finding out more obviously you can let us know about uh next february again but also you've got the the mentorship uh, nutrition mentorship that you do as well uh that's still running Yes, sir. Yeah, that's open year round now. I've got the ultimate nutrition mentorship and the ultimate training mentorship. Those are two four month online, 100% online courses where I teach coaches how to build and just be and be confident designing meal plans from scratch and designing training programs from scratch and being confident and having clarity on how to do this but also doing it from a 100% evidence-based perspective. You know, there's a lot of different stuff out there. So I want to take confusion out of the game and bring clarity into the game, teach you how to design training programs and nutrition programs through the two mentorships that are available at coachgarner.com slash products. You can go check those out. And I'm definitely coming to Hawes in February. You can also keep up to date with me at at Dan Garner Nutrition on Instagram. Wonderful. That's uh, just wraps everything up perfectly there, Dan. Well, I think um, I mean we had more on our list to talk about, Rod, and so well, we, we might have to get him back. We might have to get you back on before a couple of times before February rolls around, and um, certainly as we get closer to those dates, we can update people more on the specifics of it. But um, man, it all sounds very exciting. Let's do it. Let's hang out again. I'm in. You just show me when to show up. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Dan. Well, awesome, Dan. Have a good day, man. I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Cheers. Thanks, mate. Bye, bye. Tell you what, you can just wind him up and let him go. He took, he does talk well. How good is he? He's a seasoned veteran. Seasoned veteran. He's coming out to Australia in February of 2019. Well, those dates are quickly, be very mate. Exciting. So, Perth on the Saturday, Sunday, 9th and 10th. Melbourne yep. the next weekend, 16th, 17th. Sydney, he'll be up there with yourself and myself. Yep. Uh, the 23rd and the 24th. Then you... Look, details, I think Perth and Melbourne, he's got sorted. Yep. Um, Sydney, we're still fluffing around with various things, but we'll have a venue there. We can take expressions of interest via Dan's details. Yeah, I think uh, Dan's uh, details will be the best port of call for that one, definitely. And then on the Friday night preceding all of those, he'll be doing a free seminar... I'm not paying, ...for how to transition your business online. Beautiful. Uh, So that's that. That's very exciting. And uh, it's pretty cool he's going to uh, have a few a few little tricks up his sleeve at these seminars as well so a few uh, slightly different spins on what we already know that uh, that he feels some others aren't covering at this point in time so yeah. uh, it's he's a dangling carrot you know yeah. what we're like with dangling carrots Tom <laughs> put it in writing put it in writing yeah. Dan <laughs> huh? very good all right. Well, that's been another episode of Under the Bar podcast. Thank you very much for listening, as you always do. Thanks, Rawdon. Thanks, Cam. <laughs> Mate, that was lovely, that do. <laughs> and uh, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>